Good morning, church. The scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. The scripture passage will be on the screen, and we'll also invite you to pull out a Bible and follow along. There are Bibles in the basket seat under the seats in front of you. If you're able to stand, please stand to honor the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and for the Lord, the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immorality, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? from whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, this is, you know better than we do, this is one of the most sensitive passages I think we could preach in our moment, but I am simultaneously excited because I know that when we make our way through difficult things, you do some of your most transformative and powerful work. And so we look forward to that, Lord. Um, I pray that you would minister uniquely to the various people who are gathered here this morning in different estates who will approach this text and hear it differently. Holy Spirit, do miraculous things in our hearts and minds. We love you so much. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the body positivity movement is very much in vogue right now, as it has been since the nascent stages of that movement began 20 or so years ago. And as is the case with any movement these days, there are allies, there are detractors, there are commercializers, all of whom are having very, very charitable conversations right now on Twitter and Reddit, sponsored by Dove. My wife warned slash asked me this past week, hey, you're not going to stand up there this Sunday and give your thoughts about the body positivity movement, are you? You're not going to be doing that. And I said, of course not, one of the reasons being that uh, four to five times per day, Google is telling me that my email storage space is almost full and demanding that I start paying $1.49 per month to get more space, which I am not going to do, amen. 
So I have to be very economical with my controversies right now. However, what I meant is I'm not going to give all of my thoughts about the body positivity movement, just one of them. Ready? Christianity is the original body positivity movement. That's the one thought. God was into this way before it was cool. And in fact, he has a very high opinion of our bodies and our embodiedness, which is not surprising when you consider that we are embodied creatures according to his design. And he's not selling something. He wants the best for us because he cares about us and our flourishing. And I say all of this because we're about to talk about what not to do with our bodies. But all of that is grounded in a very beautiful biblical vision concerning what our bodies are for. And I am concerned that the Church of Jesus Christ doesn't always do a swell job painting that beautiful picture, choosing instead to simply skip to the do-nots and perhaps toss a few shame grenades into crowded areas. So even though we will get to these do-nots, which are important, and they're in the text for a reason, we're also going to spend some time on what we might call a theology of the body. And in doing so, we will see that the warnings that are contained in our passage this morning are actually a very compassionate guardrail in service of using and enjoying our bodies in the beautiful ways that God intends. Two reflections today in service of those goals as we make our way through this text. Number one, your body is a temple. And then number two, flee sexual immorality. Your body is a temple. And then number two, flee sexual immorality. Let's start with that first one. Your body, church, is a temple. Look with me again at verses 12 through 14. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. The body, do you see this in the text, is meant for some things and not meant for other things, which is really some kind of claim in our day, isn't it? Meant for some things and not other things by whom? Who is making this decision? God, who created us. See Genesis chapter 1. In chapter 2, God, who created us in his image, with bodies, wholly other than and unique from animals or anything else, with specific to-dos like work, Genesis 2.15, that involve the use of our bodies, to-dos, that are, thankfully, an expression of our intrinsic value as image bearers, not tasks given to actualize or achieve our value. Amen, because that would be exhausting. 
God created us fearfully and wonderfully. See, for example, Psalm 139, in which the psalmist describes himself as fearfully and wonderfully made. God created us equally. All human beings are full image bearers of God, regardless of physical or intellectual abilities, etc. And God created us differently. Male and female, he created us, Genesis 1.27. And no two bodies are exactly the same. This is how God created us. Not arbitrarily, but wisely with our flourishing in mind. Which means that it is such a good idea to accept and to give thanks for our bodies as he's made them and to use them according to his plan. And truthfully, our bodies belong to him anyway since he's our creator. This is definitely an aside, but I have the mic and I am passionate about this subject, so I'm just going to go for it. As embodied creatures, we are clearly designed for physical presence and for physical touch. Digital engagement is therefore corrosive when it begins to replace or cancel out physical presence. And the hyper-sexualization of our age is corrosive when it makes non-sexual physical touch foreign and implausible and rare. I would love to see the church be a counterculture that prioritizes physical presence and finds wise and prudent ways to recover the goodness of non-sexual physical touch. Sam Alberry makes this observation in his very helpful book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. He says this, Were we to know the full extent of the intricacy of God's workmanship, we would rightly be in awe. We cannot begin to measure the value of our body, however it looks and however we feel about it. And if you've read Mere Christianity, you might recall this assessment from C.S. Lewis. He says, Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, which we, of course, just celebrated during Advent that some kind of body is going to be given to us even in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, and our energy. So what happened then? Because, I mean, there's a, there's a fair amount of chaos in verses 12 and 13 concerning matters pertaining to our bodies. We don't have all of the details which makes this text complicated, but apparently members of the Corinthian church were assimilating pagan thinking about freedom and human bodies into their worldview, which matches up very well with the point we made just last week that Corinthian believers appeared to be minimalizing the differences in values and ethics that separated them from unbelieving pagans. First you minimalize, then you assimilate. That's always been the pattern, and it remains the pattern today. And the thinking being assimilated was something along the lines of, well, it's my body, so I can do what I want. I'm free. 
Some of this thinking was grounded in pagan dismissiveness about the significance of the physical body, which itself was grounded in godlessness. And perhaps, it's hard to say for sure, some Corinthian believers added gas to this fire via theological error, misconstruing Paul's reminders about being washed and sanctified and justified as licensed to eat, drink, and be merry within the realm of cultural permissiveness. To which Paul responds, saying, Corinthians, I could certainly say to myself, as is commonplace in society, and perhaps some of you are saying, I could say to myself, all things are lawful for me. But, um, hello, not all things are helpful, and I refuse to be dominated by anything, which, by the way, City Church, is ironically the common outcome of the world's definition of freedom. You eat what you want because you're free but eventually it dominates you. It becomes an addiction and a health problem that actually restricts you physically. You drink as much as you want because you're free, but then it, it dominates you and you become, recall verse 10, a drunkard, which is such an awful bondage. Alternatively, the freedom found in Christ, freedom from the bondage of sin, frees us to be dominated by Christ and to live according to his ways, which is what Paul is talking about in Romans 6.22 when he speaks of believers being slaves of God. And mind you, embodied human beings are so much more than their appetite or their sex drive or anything else which is what I take Paul to be hinting at when he says that food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. When followers of Jesus lose the narrative and forget what the future holds, we get swept up with the things our bodies do, our earthly eating and drinking, sex, and we forget that our bodies are part of of who we are, and have cosmic significance. So much so, think about this, so much so, that even though our earthly bodies are passing away, we will eventually gain our resurrection bodies. More on that in a minute. This is Sam Alberry again. Your body is another way of talking about the whole of who you are. It is not merely some matter you happen to be responsible for. Your body is an essential part of you, not a vehicle driven by the real you, like your mind, nor a mere costume that you must don. If that's the case, don't we want to treat our bodies with the utmost care and dignity, relying on God for wisdom and guidance? instead of trusting our passions and our emotions. Do you see, this is important, you see the pastoral love in Paul's concerns and his warnings. Which brings us back to this chaos in Corinth, which was ultimately the produce of sin, self-oriented obstinance toward God in which we believe, among other things, that we're the masters of our bodies, and can determine what's 
best for our bodies without divine input, thank you very much. But we're such poor masters. On account of our sin nature, we desire things for our bodies and, and we use our bodies in ways that are out of step with God's design and end up causing harm to ourselves and harm to other people. And this is really aggravating, let me tell you. All of the futility and decay we experience bodily, illness, frailty, injury, disintegration, etc., all of that entered the world on account of our sin. It wasn't always like this. So yes, our bodies remain good, but in a sense they're compromised. And we ratify the sin of Adam and Eve in part by using our own bodies sinfully so we don't dare play the blame game. In verses 13 through 17, we find a, a striking example of desire gone wrong, an example that I will try to handle with as much sensitivity as possible. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Why would somebody go be with a prostitute? Because they believe they have desires that the prostitute will satisfy. And mind you, at this time in the Roman Empire, there was no moral issue here for men with any sort of social status to be with a prostitute. None at all. So they, at least the men, were free to do so. In a sense, you could say it was permissible. And yet, in doing so, they are misusing something beautiful and good, sex, created by God to unite a man and a woman in a one body or one flesh marital union, in verse 16, Paul is quoting Genesis chapter 2, which Jesus himself refers to in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. In being that marriage is a spiritual union designed by God that refers to Christ and the church, Genesis chapter 2, Ephesians 5, all sexual union that anyone pursues outside of that marital union interferes with their union with Christ and potentially calls it into question entirely. See verse 15. And certainly in the case of prostitution, sex becomes a, a form of terrifying exploitation, regardless, biblically speaking, of how someone ends up in prostitution. Please, just do not kid yourself. If you are availing yourself of any kind of sexual services, you are always exploiting someone. You are always taking This is a lot of damage, isn't it? It's damage to God's design for marriage. It's damage to our relationship with God. Damage to other people. 
so much for calling our own shots with our bodies according to our desires or feelings. Better than to get on board with the original body positivity movement and obedience to God and his plan, which turns out to be spectacular beyond belief, especially in light of our sinfulness. I mean, that sin separates us from God spiritually and physically. But in union with Christ, your body becomes, I kid you not, look at verse 19, it becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Formerly, God was present in a physical temple, appearing in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, one time per year to meet with the high priest of Israel, only after the high priest progressed through elaborate ceremonial rituals and sacrifices a cleansing for his sin and for the sin of all Israel. But now those of us who are in Christ are completely cleansed of our sin on account of Christ's sacrifice for us, so clean that our bodies themselves are now temples of the Lord. For everybody who's in Christ, specifically by means of the Holy Spirit sent by God, to live in his people. I think about how wild this is. Sin separates us from God, but then in Christ we're reconciled to God so intensively and magnificently that we become his temple because the Holy Spirit really lives in us. Everyone's talking these days about body augmentation with technology or whatever. I mean, eventually one day you're going to be able to like, think a thought and your refrigerator is going to make you a sandwich, something like that. I'm trying to follow the science. And that, of course, presents all sorts of ethical challenges and concerns that we're making our way through very charitably on Twitter and Reddit and all of that. But if you're in Christ, you have already received the greatest body augmentation imaginable, the presence of God himself. All because God bought us, verse 20, with the price of his son Jesus Christ's own blood. Us being those who repent of their sin, in other words, that we turn away from it and ask God for forgiveness on account of Christ's blood and put their hope in Christ. Listen, I actually, this moment of vulnerability, I love Dove Intensive Repair Conditioner. Especially those bottles that they make now with the little pump. It's just that no matter how well intentioned, a vitamin-enriched hair product cannot make you a temple of the Lord. But that's who we are in Christ. So how about we glorify God in our bodies? See the end of verse 20. How about we, in, in joyful devotion to the Lord, use our bodies as God intends, regardless of how we feel at given times about his commands, trusting in his wise design and oversight? Romans 12:1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And in view of what God has done for us in Christ, 
and how highly he thinks of our bodies and how much care he's put into creating them. Don't we want to glorify God in said bodies? Isn't that the appropriate doxology in light of everything we've been considering? Keeping in mind that the restrictions God puts into place concerning our bodies are there because for all of our humanistic zeal these days to center our bodies and maximize the pleasure we experience, etc., etc. For all of that, God actually has a higher view of our bodies than we do. Which is why on the day that Jesus Christ returns, those who are in Christ will be raised with spiritual, imperishable bodies made in the image of Christ's own resurrection body. 1 Corinthians 15. Perfect bodies that are free from the effects of sin and illness, in injury, in disease, bodies in which all of our longings will be completely pure and entirely fulfilled. But even now, our citizenship is in heaven. We don't have to wait for that. Even now, our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And here's what heavenly citizens do, among many other things, while we wait. Let's get really practical, which brings us rather briefly here to our second reflection. We flee sexual immorality. In light of everything we've just been talking about, we flee sexual immorality. Look with me at Paul's exhortation in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Standing alone, this exhortation to flee sexual immorality, you know, any, any sexual activity outside of the marital union, it might seem prudish and austere, culturally backwards, restrictive. Honestly, it's, it's the butt of our contemporary jokes, unsubtly mocked in television shows, movies, etc. Seinfeld, a show that I honestly enjoyed on many levels. I've seen every episode. Nonetheless, if you will recall, ridiculed things like abstinence and cast some shade on marriage. And you know, as we would say here in our individualistic West, isn't it far more liberating to use our bodies in whatever ways we believe will bring us happiness and pleasure. But now that we know the story, the theology of the body, we've just navigated very briefly. Now we see the goodness of this warning. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Church, every sin is the same in the sense that it's an offense against our holy God that separates us from God. But as you can read for yourself in verse 18, this is not difficult preaching here, sexual sin is different than every other sin because the sexually immoral person sins against his or her own body. The sexually immoral person is causing harm to his or her own body in a way that other sins do not. What is this sinning against his or her own body. The text itself isn't explicit about what this is. 
But last week we discussed how God intends physical intimacy to be a means for spouses to serve and care for each other as they live out the mysterious marital dance that points to the relationship between Christ and his church. And then today we already saw how our bodies have cosmic significance, including the spectacular consideration that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So the damage being done must be related to those things. For example, and I'm just going to quote directly from the Australian Catholic scholar Brendan Byrne. This is from an article he wrote in the 80s. The immoral person perverts precisely that faculty within himself that is meant to be the instrument of the most intimate bodily communication between persons. He sins against his unique power of communication intended to be a means of caring for his spouse and vice versa, and in this sense sins in a particular way against his own body. No other sin engages one's power of bodily personal communication in such an intimate way. Or to put this another way, when sex is employed for any means other than caring for your spouse in the context of the aforementioned marital dance, you confuse and miscommunicate with your own body and you compromise your ability to employ sex in its, pop, in its proper context in the future. Can God heal and restore? Graciously, the answer is yes and amen. And some of us have experienced that kind of healing. But the damage, the sin against our own bodies, not to mention the harm done to other people, is nonetheless real. And how can our bodies be temples of the Holy Spirit if they are being employed in ways that obscure the God-centered realities that marriage is supposed to point to? They can't. Thus adding to the unique ways in which we sin against our bodies when we're engaged in sexual immorality. So with God's help, we get to flee it together. I want to unpack all of that. With God's help, we get to flee it together. Get to. Have you, have you ever heard it framed like this? I don't think many have, because finger-wagging and judgmentalism related to these matters have far too often been one of the closer cousins of Christian churches and organizations and publications. But it's a get-to, as we've just been seeing. And we flee it. It's hard work requiring vigilance and prayerfulness and increasingly quite a lot of tolerance for being out of step with cultural norms and looking really odd in the eyes of the world. And we do all of this together Church, this is really important. Fleeing sin in isolation is hardly an instruction from the Lord. He's all about fleeing sin in community, for caring for one another, for holding one another accountable, for sharing burdens, for bringing things into the light that need to be brought into the light. Tapping into the gospel power found within the rhythms of repentance and forgiveness, and belief, all couched within an ecosystem of grace. 
I do not have to know a single thing about you to know that God's grace is sufficient for you and that he can change you and heal you and that he would love to do it, by the way. That is the kind of community. I want to be really clear about this. That is exactly the kind of community our, our pastors and elders and leaders desire to have here at City Church, albeit imperfectly, of course. So if you are struggling alone, I really hope that you will reach out to us even this week. Maybe it's a note on a connection card. Maybe it's an email. Maybe it's a comment to somebody in your community group whom you trust. Somebody. We are here to care for you. And we love you. And we have all sorts of resources that we can recommend to you and, and help you get connected with. And if you've been victimized by someone else's sexual sin, all of the above applies to you as well. As we close, I want to address a possible objection here, a really powerful objection, to be honest with you. Specifically, that Christians don't have any moral ground to stand on when it comes to sexuality on account of cases of abuse and other sexual sin affecting Christian churches and other institutions, particularly their leaders. You read the news. I want to say that is an incredibly fair objection a very reasonable objection. I want to respond to that by directing your attention to some comments from Glenn Scrivener in his book, The Air We Breathe, how uh, we call, came to call and believe in freedom, kindness, progress, and equality. His book is called The Air We Breathe. These are comments from Glenn Scrivener. He says this, A number of Christians have been found guilty of horrendous sexual crimes, in the last 20 centuries. Some have gained headlines, while others have not. And sometimes the cover-ups have been as diabolical as the abuse. But there is more than one sense in which Christianity has brought abuse into the world. The Christian revolution, in other words, the advent of the early church and everything that's, that's followed, has actually given us the category of sexual abuse a category that was unknown to the culture in which Christianity first spread. For example, and now he's referencing the historian Kyle Harper, in the sexual life of the Roman Empire, it would be impossible to overstate the decisive influence of social position and the determination of sexual boundaries. It was the status of your partner, not their consent, their age, or their gender that mattered. And it was your reputation within a shame-based culture that determined the rightness of an encounter, not any inherent wrongfulness regarding particular acts. Then Christianity came around and challenged all of this. It brought what Glenn Scrivener calls an earthquake in sexual morality related to the way that we think about our bodies, the purpose of sex, and so forth. Here's Glenn Scrivener again. All of this forces us to consider the standards by which we judge abuse. For abuse to be abuse, we have to believe certain things. The body should be treated as temples. 
that sex is sacred, that children are valuable, and that the powerful should not exploit the weak, but serve them. Church, it's God's beautiful, purposeful design of human bodies that allows us to call depraved things depraved things. For there to be crooked lines, including abuse or any form of sexual immorality, I'm borrowing from C.S. Lewis again, there has to be such a thing as a straight line, a standard by which to measure everything else. And so I'll end with a, a little cadence that I used a few weeks ago. I understand that there's rightfully a lot of cynicism right now concerning the church, concerning pastors. But please, 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 don't be cynical about Jesus. Don't be cynical concerning the God who created us wonderfully and fearfully and gives us categories to call depraved things depraved things. I hope that we can give space for these conversations to continue. I'm sure community groups will be really something this week, huh? But this is an invitation to further dialogue. This is not the last word on this subject. We would love to be in conversation with all of you. Amen.